0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, I'm joined by an international guest who is one of the smartest and most energetic people in the industry. Uh, This is a man with a true vision for what the industry can become and how it can impact the lives of both people and planet. I'm speaking, of course, of Rob Gardner, who is the director of investment at St. James's Place, where he oversees the investments of over 700,000 clients and over 100 billion pounds in client assets. Rob, welcome to the show.
2: Daniel, great to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Rob, when I think about you, the word that comes to mind is is high energy or, or passion. And you described yourself as a financial activist. And for me, the heart of your activism is is around the e in ESG so can you tell us is am I right is this the source of this seemingly endless enthusiasm and why is the ESG so important to you
2: well actually it's a it's a bit bigger than that so I, I kind of my the thing that drives me is financial well-being in a world worth living in and so the world worth living in is definitely the e. And, and the environment and the planet, and we'll, we'll touch on that. Uh, but but I mean, it's fair to say I'm equally passionate about financial well-being, and I think what I want to touch on is actually how the two can help each other, they're, they're symbiotic. And so uh, I'm I'm equally as passionate about the importance of teaching specifically children about money and how it works and how to make good decisions about money. And and that comes because actually a lot of my career has been in finance and in pensions, and and the sad truth is people are bad at, managing money and getting into debt and it causes all kinds of issues. And in a life where we're all living longer, people are bad at planning for retirement and having enough money. The flip side is I believe money makes the world go round. And I believe that money can be more powerful than how you vote at a ballot box, can be more powerful than whether you choose to spend with company A or company B, can be a real force for good. And actually, if you sort your financial well-being out, you get this real sort of Archimedean leverage in terms of how you use your money, in terms of how you save and invest. And if you align it in the right way, and alignment's the key point, I think you can change the behavior of companies. And if you change the behavior of companies, uh, we can really start to, to tackle how we treat the planet and, and hopefully reverse the damage that we've created these last you know four or five decades.
1: So a a slight digression here, you know, we have been intermittent, we'll say at best in our in our church attendance over the last two years. Usually we're very regular, uh, but there's been, you know, lots of problems with gathering with large crowds over the last two years. And so we've been doing sort of little ethical and moral lessons with our children from, from home for the last two years. And on one recent home church, I asked the kids you know, write down what you have learned from mom and dad, like what, what, like effectively what has stuck, you know, what are, what, what is sort of our family credo? What are the things that we believe? And what was fascinating to me is that one of my children said, we support good companies. And another one of my kids said, we vote with our dollars. And this was like, you know, I was thinking more sort of straight up the middle religious stuff, but it was interesting to me that this this belief of mine that that we share it sounds like that the way that you you spend your money brings about the kind of world you want to see right i'm a strong believer that there's few things that 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 are more powerful than bringing about the kind of world you want to see uh, than how you spend your money so uh, esg has been on a huge tear recently but but perhaps the only thing that is growing as quickly is esg is cynicism about ESG, right? We have these terms like greenwashing now. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for ESG, but I think there's also a lot of cynicism and skepticism around it. How can we help achieve your twofold mission here of of, financial wellness in a world worth living in without it just being lip service? How practically can we do this the right way?
2: So before I answer that, and just to build out on what you said, because I get often asked and go, well, you know, what can I do, Rob? And I have five areas you can do it. So my five areas you can do it is where you earn it, where you save it, where you spend it, where where you invest it, and where you give back either money or time. So where you earn it is your employer a responsible business? And this links back to the greenwashing because who you work for is also the businesses you can invest in. So how can you test, is your business kind of walking the walk or are they just talking the talk? And I'll come back to that. But I, I can choose who I want to work for and I want to work for good or bad companies. A lot of oil, comp- oil and gas companies in the UK and in Europe are finding it harder and harder to attract bright young graduates to come and come and join them. The second thing is where I save my money. And uh, one of the things that came out of Glasgow uh, and COP26 is Mark Carney's Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And in that, there's asset managers, wealth managers like SJP, but also banks. And you can go on a website and find out you know, where is Barclays, HSBC, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, where do they sit, Bank of America, where do they sit in terms of their commitments and what are they doing about it? So where I save or borrow my money. Thirdly, who do I spend my money in with? Is Am I spending my money with a company that exists in the old, what I call, take-make-waste economy? Or am I spending my money with companies that embrace the circular economy? Uh, if you want to kind of get companies that really embrace it, you know, one of the, probably my favorite brands is Patagonia. Patagonia have been doing this for years But more and more companies like Nike are really embracing the circular economy. If you've bought Nike products recently, you probably uh, will see that a lot of it is made from reused, recycled material. And they're really trying to drive uh, drive this. Then invest. and, And that's the whole ESG, investing your personal investments, your pensions, your 401k in the U.S., uh, and then finally, you know, I can give money to charity. I can give money to Greenpeace. I can give money to WWF. I can maybe give up my time. I could cycle or run and so forth. But, but all of those things. The point is, with all of them, how do I know they're actually doing what they're doing? Right? It doesn't matter. You know, if the company I work for, how do I know is St James's Place a responsible business? If I'm investing with Nike, how do I know that? Nike are a responsible business. If I've maybe found a new company on Instagram that I really like their clothes and they've got a good thing, is it, 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 is it really, uh, really the case? I think like everything in life, there are kind of levels of what are called commitments and then you need to be able to verify those commitments. So uh, organizations that are responsible will have typically made commitments, but commitments are easy. The question is: Have they followed up with actions, and to what extent are they taking actions? and And can you can you see them, or can they be verified by other parties? By the way, the fastest growing part of the professional services firms, the audit and accountancy firms, is in this whole kind of ESG verification space, right? It's about uh, when, when a company says our carbon, di- you know, our carbon footprint has gone from X to Y. How do we know that is it true? If they say we've planted. <laughs> Ten thousand trees, hundred thousand trees, a million trees. How do we know have they have they planted a million trees? But I think at the heart of greenwashing is additionality uh, and impact, and to what extent is a company saying one thing but really just carrying on doing what they want? And, and and I suppose the one to call out is the oil and gas sector. And interestingly, some of the PR firms or the public relations firms, not public relations, public policy firms, are being sued for. Uh, on the basis that they've been kind of influencing government policy and influencing the way we think to change the way that we think about oil and gas companies. And if you haven't, there's a brilliant podcast series on BBC Radio 4, and it's called Their Product is Doubt. Hmm. And it talks about how the big oil and gas majors, specifically Exxon, employed I think it's Noel Hillman, which is the original firm that the tobacco companies hired in the 1950s to convince us that tobacco didn't cause cancer and to convince us to smoke. And what they realised is that we don't need to win the argument. We don't need to win the counter-argument. And that's why the whole title of the podcast is their product is doubt, is that we just need to undermine the scientists. If we can undermine the scientists, if we can position the scientists as out of touch with... uh, normal human beings, normal people going about their day jobs. All we need to do is disrupt the thinking and undermine a little bit of the credibility and the whole thing falls down. And the reality is uh, Exxon have got papers going back to 1980 where they predict the CO2 parts per million being 420 parts per million by 2020. So even in 1980, 40 years ago, their own R&D team correctly impacted, correctly calculated the impact that they will have on the planet. And therefore, when it comes to ESG, everyone's now like, OK, well, hang on a minute. We can't go about having these negative externalities. And so we need to really know, are we having an impact? And so there's two things. Are the companies we're investing in doing what they're saying they're doing? The second thing is, are our actions and behaviors driving change? So when it comes to investing, there's this is kind of concept called the spectrum of capital. And at one end, you've got ethical investing. At the other end, you've got impact investing, and in the middle, you've got ESG. But even within ESG, there were kind of three types of ESG. So it's a bit like you know when I study religion and I study Christianity, and then you know it breaks down and breaks down. The same is true. Uh, the same is true for ESG and responsible investing. The problem with ethical investing, which was something that was popular in the 1990s, you know, the Church of England would have done that is you say, I don't like tobacco companies. I don't like oil and gas, and I divest. The issue is in capital markets, if I I sell someone, by definition, someone's a buyer. And the problem is, it doesn't make the problem go away. So it's a bit like if I have rubbish in my garden, I walk into my garden, I take the rubbish, and I throw it next door into your garden. I feel great. I've got no rubbish in my garden. The rubbish hasn't gone away. It's still there. So ethical investing helps the investor feel good about themselves but it doesn't create any additionality this is kind of what Tarek fancy from blackrock was calling out and i know you touched on this a little bit in your last podcast the second bit is impact investing is where you're investing for profit but you're investing in a particular theme you know the popular one has been this shift to renewable energy another really popular one right now is how do we create sustainable agriculture how do we decarbonize agriculture but in the middle, ESG. And again, we've got kind of three types we've got screening, integration, and engagement. Now, screening just means I can go and buy data from someone like MSCI or Sustainalytics, and all these companies will be rated on an ESG scorecard, AAA, AA, and so forth. There are two issues with that. One is they're backward looking. So it's like looking through the rearview mirror rather than forward looking. And therefore, the the highest rating companies have probably already had a lot of financial performance, and the lowest ratings are lower. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get that return that you've had over the last five years, over the next five to 10 years. The second thing is, again, I'm not having any impact on the business. Anyone can buy Microsoft. Microsoft is a brilliant company on E. It's pretty good on S. And it's pretty good on G. In fact, Microsoft as an ESG stock is brilliant. But if I own it and I'm not engaging on them on the stuff that I'm not, what impact am I having? I'm just kind of lazily just following a good uh, a good company. You know, companies, in fact, impact the world and the world impact companies. How am I understanding these kind of environmental, social and governance risks? And how am I integrating that into my kind of price valuation model? And then finally, there's engagement. And engagement is this idea that as shareholders, as your kit said, you know, do, you know, vote with my dollar. And as a shareholder, I get to vote against the management team. I get to engage with the management team. James gave a brilliant example in, the, in your last podcast about how they engage with this Korean business. They said, "Look, you're not good enough on governance. You need to sort out this. You need to put new people on the board. You need to face these issues." And this this stock re- re-rated, and they made three times. The money, the point is, is they made that business a better business, which is good for the planet, but it also makes money. And this is where we're kind of shifting to this triple bottom line. And so when it comes to greenwashing, you need to know, how are you investing? Where are you on that spectrum of capital? And you want to make sure that your pension, you know, whether you're investing through a pension company or through a fund manager, can they evidence that they're having an impact or do they just own those stocks? So, for example, at SJP, we own 1.8 billion pounds of Microsoft. Microsoft, as I've already told you, is a brilliant company. We have two ESG concerns about Microsoft. One is around the ethics of artificial intelligence, and two is about responsible gaming. They make a lot of money from making computer games and all the rest. Great, nothing wrong with computer games, but you know we don't want everyone spending all of their time on computer games. So, how do we? How is Microsoft thinking about? Those issues and responding to it. And so when we think about ESG, we want to make sure that our fund managers can demonstrate that to us. And actually, that doesn't necessarily mean investing in the best companies. You know, we're invested in companies like Rio Tinto and Anglo American uh, that are sort of metals and mining companies. We want them to be talking and engaging with us and saying, how are we thinking about the risks and how are we transitioning and how are we investing our, co- our, our capital? to be the sustainable leaders in the category that we're in. That, to me, is what good ESG looks like. And I suppose the challenge is you need to be able to satisfy yourself. Do you know how are they investing in? And when they are investing in, get examples so you can really understand that they're having that kind of additional impact
1: when when i think about these these levels you've laid out here it, it seems to me that that some are easier to get a balanced portfolio than in than others when you think about something like divestment fine let's say you don't want to own weapons manufacturers it's relatively easy to have a balanced portfolio that's divested of the handful of gun gun and weapons manufacturers uh, but if you go on the other end of the esg spectrum or the the uh the values-based spectrum to something like impact investing, that's much more niche, that's much more hands-on, it's harder to get diversification. For the average SGP client who's interested in these things, what is sort of the mix across these three levels, if you will?
2: So, you know, firstly, our core investment belief is engagement. So we don't divest. We do actually have a policy around, you know, the, the United Nations Global Compact, and so specifically about some you know, weapons manufacturers. But the issue with exclusions, it's quite a slippery slope once you go down that. So for all of our clients, ESG is integrated into everything we do. We use Rubico, who are probably the largest stewardship and engagement advisor on the planet to advise us. We hold all of our fund managers to a really high bar. So all of our fund managers are signed up to the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing. Two thirds of them are rated A plus. As a company, we've committed to have all of our investments net zero by 2050, to reduce the carbon intensity by 25% by 2025 and by 50% by by 2030. And so we need managers who will kind of understand that, that, that glide plan and transition. So as a starter for 10, we've got, you know, it's actually now about $200 billion and it's about 13,000 equities and bonds and properties around the world. All of that is ESG integration. So you get that. So you can get really good diversification with
1: that. So I, I, I love your, your five-point framework. I've, I've actually never heard it laid out that way. I find it really intuitive in a way to think more holistically than, than just simply the, the sort of investing sleeve. But of course, as a behavioral finance guy, my One of my primary interests around ESG is, is the way that it shapes investor behavior. Now, many years ago, like maybe five or six, I wrote an article for the Green Money Journal saying that I believe that ESG investing would lead clients to make better financial decisions because it would be perceived as stickier. Uh, it would be perceived as more aligned with their values I think a lot of times when clients own something generic, right? They own a large cap, whatever, a large cap U.S. stock fund. This doesn't mean anything very specific to them. But if they own a fund that's more aligned with their values, it's personalized, it's less of a video game, and it's more of, of, uh, you know, sort of a real integration with how they think. From a behavioral perspective, what are you seeing with your clients and the stickiness of these assets? As you take this ESG approach, I mean, look. For,
2: for the starting point is that we are
1: a financial advice business, and therefore, the, the you
2: know, clients are paying for advice. And why do they pay for advice? Because they want a financial plan to achieve their goals. Uh, they want someone who's going to help them figure out the best use of tax wrappers. They want someone who's going to be a behavioural coach, and you know, not freak out when the markets. Uh, panic. They want someone who's going to help them think about strategic asset allocation. They want someone to hold them accountable. So I suppose when we look at our data and our clients, they join us for decades, not days. You know, you don't join SJP. So we're not Robin Hood. We're not any of these kind of DIY platforms. Uh, You know, it's our 30th anniversary. And I've got a case study of a client who's been with us (laughs) 30 years. We've got three generations of financial advisors I'm a client, my mum and dad are clients, and my daughters are clients. So I suppose those 850,000 clients now have chosen to go down the financial advice route, which is automatically, you know, we're not trying to be clever. We're not trying to capture the Zoom boom. You know, you, you, you're going in there. Within our kind of profile, we've got clients who are babies, we've got clients who are 100 years old, we've got the full breadth of UK. And I kind of break down our clients into kind of three avatars. It's obviously more complicated than that. I've got an avatar who I call Dave, and Dave works in Aberdeen. And Aberdeen is a very big oil and gas. You know, it's not quite Houston, but it's kind of the Houston of the UK. You know, BP and Shell will be based there, all the North Sea oil and gas there. He is probably in his 60s and about to retire Uh, And he's skeptical about all of this ESG, and he just cares about performance uh, and just thinks this is all just a a load of woke nonsense. Just give me my performance. I just want the highest return. And and his fear is, by doing all of this, am I giving up performance? The second avatar that we have, and we have a lot of these, uh, are people who love ESG. A lot of them are head of sustainability at a fund manager. They're head of sustainability A PwC, an EY, a Landor, an Accenture, they're passionate about this stuff, they get it. And their big concern is, we think all financial services firms are basically charlatans and they're all greenwashing and they're not doing it. And then the third type is like my mom and dad, who are quite happily saving. And then they go, you know what, I wouldn't mind opening up a, a pension or a GISA, which is a children's investment savings account for my grandchildren. And then when we say, by the way, did you know if you invest in a sustainable and responsible way over a 40-year period, that's 27 times more impactful than flying less, eating less red meat? And it's the kind of, did you know, aha. Mm-hmm. So that's really, that's really powerful. So I just want to give you those kind of three client avatars. It's way more complicated than that. But often when I'm sitting down with one of our sort of 4,500 partners and they say, how do you explain ESG to my clients? I say, well, it depends... What type of client they are, because I need to understand what their kind of pain point is or what's their need or what's their gain. So Dave actually he wants oil and gas, and he actually likes the fact that we don't divest. So at SJP, the we're overweight BP and Shell and total, but we don't own Exxon and we don't own Chevron and we don't own Gazprom. And we can articulate why. And we can say, well, look, we engaged Shell to sign up to Net Zero. We voted against them last April. And we got them to increase their Net Zero accounts. And we're holding them to account. We see success as helping them transition. And by the way, we also own VW. And we own Ford. And we want companies like Ford to re-rate and transition to EVs. And Ford share price is at a 20-year high as it has pivoted and started to capture some of the Tesla-style valuation. We're invested in Nike. We're investing in Xylem. And this is how you make money. So the point is that Dave, Dave, my kind of fictional Dave, he cares about performance. He, he, he thinks it's all woke. He definitely cares. He's worked his entire life in oil and gas, so doesn't like divestment. And, and he's like, OK, that's cool. The head of sustainability or XYZ firm is like, OK, tell me about SJP. Well, firstly, here are our investment beliefs on our website. Investment belief seven is responsible investment in everything that we do. And two years ago, we committed to have 100% of our fund managers signed up to the United Nations Principles of Respons- Responsible Investing. SJP is rated A+. plus, It's the highest that you can be. In 2020, we were the first wealth manager globally to sign up to the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance when it was only $5 trillion. We set out a commitment... To be 25% by 2025 with no divestment, which we've achieved three years early, and we've done it across every single asset class: equity, fixed income, and property. And this is how we do it, and we do it through uh, we do it through engagement. We're part of Climate Action 100 Plus because a hundred, only a hundred out of the thousands of companies on this planet are responsible for 70% of global CO2 emissions. And so we want to use our money to engage with those 100 companies. And that's why we're part of Climate Action 100+. And then we want to double down on our stewardship and engagement, which is why we've appointed Rubico. And what, Rubico normally only work with like Dutch pension funds and Scandi pension funds. We're the only wealth manager that we work with. And by the way, here's all of our engagement reports of how we've worked with these fund managers. And here's how, and by the way, here's our stewardship and engagement report on our website. And then as a business, SJP is a responsible business We're committed to four things. Financial well-being, that's the core of our business. Financial advice, and we give back through financial education. Investing responsibly, that's all the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, Climate change as a FTSE 100 company, and as someone responsible of custodians of $200 billion, how can we use that to influence climate change? And four, how do we give back? How do we give back our time and our money to impact the local communities? And here's all of that stuff. And by the way, in the last three years, we've reduced our carbon intensity by 50% committed 2025 so it's walk sorry talk walk talk walk here's the evidence here's uh, here's the commitments and when and when those kind of esg skeptics look at it they're like oh, okay you, you you are walking the walk you're not just I and mean, we, we can talk about microsoft we can talk about uh, anglo american we can talk about nike we can talk about all of these companies good and bad and how we're engaging with them and then as i say for You know, so people like my mum and dad, the grandparents, they're just over the moon that they can kind of set up an investment account for their grandkids, and that they can feel good about themselves. So exactly the point you were making in this article, and then they really connect with it. And I think the job that we have in financial services is to bring this to life, is to tell stories. People remember stories. People don't remember a fact sheet. So, and and increasingly, I think when clients get, you know, how's my money doing? How's my money doing from a return, from a risk and from an impact perspective? And I want to know you know, how much CO2 has being sequestered as a result of my investments, how much plastic has been removed from the oceans because of the companies that I've done, uh, how much diversity has been added to the boards of the companies that I invest in. And I think once we start to do that and bring out that
1: storytelling combined with financial performance, that makes it super engaging. So I, what I think is so brilliant. So first of all, I think they all need names. It's not fair that only Dave has a name. you got to come up with, you got to come up with no, that I, 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 well, no. I,
2: do, I, I do actually. Uh, I do actually have names. Uh, I do actually have names for all of them. I've created an entire family tree of avatars at SJP. Actually,
1: <laughs> so yeah. Well, now that that's out of the way, I think it's brilliant how you've sort of psychographically um, segmented your, your population there. I think there's a lesson in there for the advisors who listen to this podcast. This, whether it's behavioral coaching, whether it's an explanation around ESG, there, there's a there's a truism here, which is to psychographically segment that population you have and then come up with a story that that assuages their concerns, right? That's the that's the ticket. You know, I talked in my book about research out of Princeton that shows how two people's brains light up. Just alike when they're when they're in conversation around a story that doesn't happen when you when two people are sharing numbers but when there's a story their brains look identical and so that's what we do figure out which segment are they a Dave are they one of these others figure out which segment they they fit in and then and then tell them a story that fits so I want to get to the first part of your your two part mantra here financial wellness in a world worth living in. We've talked about the latter. Let's let's talk a bit about the former. Uh, we have something in common. We both we both have a connection to Argentina. My dad was actually a missionary in Argentina, so I grew up hearing stories about Argentine inflation and your money story uh, begins in Argentina, where your mom and dad were teachers at a time of extreme inflation. Thirty uh, percent a month at, at different points makes our seven percent in the U.S. seem uh, seem like not much. And you said in your brilliant TEDx talk that you used to play a game that you called Argentinian Supermarket Sweep. Uh, can you tell us what that is and what that time in Argentina taught you about financial wellness?
2: And do you guys get Supermarket Sweep in the US? Do you know what I mean? The, the TV show? Is there a TV show called Supermarket Sweep?
1: I, I'm familiar with it. I don't know that I've ever seen it. I know well, basically what it is.
2: Yeah, you get basically the game show is you go in and you've got time and you answer questions spending on it, you've then got the time to go around the supermarket and get as much stuff as you can in your basket mm-hmm. and then leave. So look, when you know we moved in the 1980s, I think one pound and one dollar were almost, so it was almost parity with the dollar. Mm. And interestingly, with one Australian. And so two things happen while we were in Argentina or in, sorry, inflation and devaluation. So they're kind t- of two concepts. So devaluation is where basically the country just says, okay, we've got this currency and we're going to change it to that. You know, you, you start getting into hundreds and 10,000 and you take it and and and, and issue a new uh, and issue a new note. So we were, we were these young Brits, or I was like seven living in Argentina. My parents uh, taught at a school called uh, St. Andrew Scott School in Buenos Aires. And they would get paid in local money. And at the end of the month, Because inflation was running at 30%, we would go to the supermarket. So by the way, every day, prices were changing. So prices were not static day to day. So someone had to go around the supermarket or the shop intraday and change the prices. And the point was, if you could buy the bread, the milk, the cheese, whatever, at the morning price, then that was the price you paid at the till. So we'd get to the supermarket and we were like, okay, out the car, kids, you know, my sister, you go and get that. And so we'd literally run around the supermarket and try and grab everything before the people in the supermarket were going around changing the price. So that's what I meant by Supermarket Suite. This idea that literally prices were changing in front of your eyes before you do it. And so on that day, we would get everything, new shoes, new clothes. So it was like, okay, like, right, bam, we've been paid, go and buy everything, because tomorrow it's going to be 30% more. Then my dad, no one would trust the banks, right? So we live in a construct where, certainly in the UK and in America, where you don't worry about putting your money in the bank and it disappearing. So you're not going to put your money in the bank in Argentina in the 1980s. And so what we used to do was change our money to US dollars. So US dollars was kind of the currency that everyone trusted. But you you weren't allowed to do it legally. You had to do it illegally on the black market. Mm -hmm. So we used to drive up to this house that I promise you looked like a house out of narcos. Imagine a big house with Dobermans and bars on the windows. We'd pull up outside. We'd be in the car. And my dad would get out. And he'd go into this house, <laughs> doberman's off and everything else. Mm-hmm. He'd take all of his money in a big flipping paper envelope, hand it to them, get US dollars. We'd get in the car and we'd drive home. And then we used to get the money and we'd roll it up and put it in the old 35 millimeter film canisters yep. and then hide them. And then we'd pull bricks out of the wall and hide it behind a brick. We'd hide it in the freezer, all kinds of stuff. I'm sure there's probably still money left in the house. <laughs> but anyway, as a seven-year-old boy... Growing up, this was kind of my my upbringing. The crazy thing is, you know, we'd go traveling all over South America, and by, you know, by eight or nine, I knew every exchange rate in Argentina to the U.S. dollar because that was that was kind of the currency. Yeah. The second thing that I kind of kind of learnt, one of my frameworks that I like to teach kids is earn it, keep it, and grow it. And so, my parents taught at this. Uh, school, which is really for super wealthy Argentinians. So the Gini coefficient in Argentina was extreme. So very, very small percentage of super wealthy people, no middle class, and then lots and lots of very poor people. We were like this non-existent middle class. We were sort of better off than the average 99%, but nowhere near the kids that my parents taught. And so we wouldn't have any money. And I'd, and I'd come home from school every day with, with money. And my parents were like, how would you get it? And so what what used to happen was I used to watch the older kids and they'd be drinking their Coca-Cola and Fanta and they were in bottles, glass bottles. And I used to just collect up all the glass bottles at the end of playtime. I'd then go and hide them. And then at the end of school, I'd collect them all up and I'd take them to the shop and you'd get the money for returning the glasses and, and I'd have money. And so one of the things that I like to teach people is that there's opportunities to earn money everywhere. You just need to go and look for it. You know, a great example is just Google eBay millionaires. The number of eBay millionaires in the UK has increased significantly in the last two years as people have figured out how to make money, just selling other people's stuff on eBay. And I just use that as an example about being entrepreneurial about how you can go, uh, go and earn money. But yeah, that's how I kind of, uh, that's my experience growing up with uh, hyperinflation in the 1980s in Argentina.
1: Yeah. I loved, I loved hearing that story. And it was, what, what years were you there? We went out uh, sort of,
2: End of '84, and we came back in '89. So we were there like '85, '86, '87, '88.
1: Yeah, my dad, my dad was there in the late '70s. I think it would have been, but I, I, I learned some of those same lessons vicariously, albeit not as, um, not as forcefully as you did. In this fantastic TEDx talk, you you cite some other stats to do with financial literacy and wellness. I want to read them here. There's 25 million adults in the UK that are financially vulnerable. 17 million don't have an extra hundred pounds for an emergency. 4 million are one month away from bankruptcy in the event of a financial emergency. Uh, we, we all have similar, I think we're, we're familiar here in the U S with, with very similar uh, levels of, of I think financial precariousness. I struggle with what to do here, right? I, I know that financial literacy has to be part of the equation but it also seems like there have to be bigger systemic issues at play like not paying a living wage. What can be done when when so many of our brothers and sisters are so on the edge of financial despair and are just one emergency away from, from going over?
2: Yeah, so look, I- and, and look, sadly, those stats have got worse. Right? I mean, that TEDx talk was, you know, uh, formed a bit years ago, and we've had COVID in between, which has just exacerbated all of those issues. And just if I can add one other stat before I answer the question: in the UK, and I'm sure it's true in the US and around the world, 51 percent of all mental health issues are to do with money and indebtedness.
1: So when you look at the the American Psychological Association studies stress in the life of Americans and, and the length of the study has been about as long as my life. So I'm 42. They've been studying it about as long as I've been alive. And every single year they've studied it. Money is the number one stressor in the lives of Americans. And I mean, this is one of the, you know, the most prosperous nations in the world. And money is the number one stressor of Americans. So I believe it.
2: So so look, I think I'm not trying to suggest that financial education is the cure to all uh, issues. And I suppose it's like climate change and greenwashing. The problem is complicated and nuanced. And it's not it's not black and white. What, What I can say in the UK, we have this brilliant study, which is run by the Office of National Statistics, And it's called the Wealth Asset Study. And it basically looks at people's wealth by age and by income. And they define wealth as all of the money that you have in your house or your home, all of the physical assets you might have, your guitars, your your car, your, your wine, your clothes, your furniture, all of your kind of financial assets, stock shares, and then your pensions. And then you need to deduct. So that's everything that you own and then you need to take away everything that you own so if you've got a mortgage against your house if you've got credit card debt and so that number is is wealth and there are a couple of sort of big picture observations a as you might expect wealth is correlated with age so the older you get you tend to build up more wealth but it is not as correlated with income as you would think and so what you can track is wealth relative to income level so 10% so if you take income and take the 10th decile, the 20th, the 30th, the 40th, the 50th, 60th, 70th, 80th, 90th, there is very little correlation between the two. And we can see this, right? Because there's this fact that 84% of NFL players go bankrupt two years after playing uh, basketball, uh, sorry, uh, uh, American football. We see the same across many uh, professional athletes. We know that Johnny Depp his nickname is Johnny Depp, right? Despite earning $20 million a movie, despite earning like $185 million parts of the Caribbean, the guy is bankrupt. And so having more money doesn't solve the problem. If I can bifurcate the problem down, the bottom thirtieth, 30%, 30%, clearly there is an issue there. And there's stuff, you know, about minimum wage. Again, you know, Elon Musk and various people have talked about how in the future you know, universal basic income could be an answer. Uh, New Zealand has trialled universal basic income. Uh, There have been various kind of countries and and cities, not countries, but cities and kind of counties that have trialled universal basic income as a solution. I think someone in the US was running for president who wanted to kind of take money from the tech giants and basically propose universal basic uh, income. Although I do think that creates kind of behavioral and social and psychological issues, which you'll be much better qualified to answer. If I can take the 30% to 60 or 70% and say within there, there's a cadre of people who are earning enough money, but are making poor. So are there people who are earning okay money, but making poor financial decisions and ending up the wrong side of the track. And, and absolutely they are, because in the UK, we have this concept of kind of isolated millionaires. In the US, you have this kind of big fire movement. In fact, fire movement is a global thing. And, and and it's this idea that sort of like extreme saving, consistent investing on in a disciplined way. How do you get a million bucks by the time you're 40 and then, and then live off it? And the, the reality is you can do that on, on much lower levels of income than, 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 than you think. And so for me, it all comes down to financial decision-making, which is having that knowledge and understanding, but crucially having the right attitude and having the right habits to know what to do. And so if you find yourself in debt... uh, So the way I try and describe it is I use the analogy of a smartphone. So it turns out in the UK, when people in their 30s are saying, what do you wish you knew at school? Four of the top five are to do with money. So number one is how to budget. In fact, the only one that is not financial is how to change a plug. Everything else is how to take out insurance, what, how a pension works, how to budget. And I'm like, well, why are people not good at budgeting? I commute in to work. And I go, well, actually, I look at people in their smartphone, and people are very good at budgeting on their smartphone. Why? Because when you're on commuting, when your phone gets down to 20%, it automatically kicks into low power mode, which sucks down certain apps. It stops you using the power. Certainly, if I'm using it, I cut down. If I, you know, I'm normally listening to Spotify, checking my email, sending WhatsApp, so like I'm just burning through my battery, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and when you go into low power mode, you're like, okay, right, I need to dampen it down. So I'm like, okay, so people do know how to budget. So I talk about when it comes to money, there are three, think of you've got like these three smartphone batteries, your today money, your tomorrow money, and your day after tomorrow money. Your today money is the money that you need to survive day to day. And if you're running into 20% mode and into red, you need to top that up. And your number one job is to charge that up. So if you don't have a thousand bucks, your number one goal is to get an emergency fund to a thousand bucks. If you don't have three months' living expenses, you need to get there. Can you get to six months? Can you get to 12 months? turns out in the UK, if you lose your job, the average time taken to find a new job in this kind of post-COVID world is about 12 months. If you have 12 months set aside, that makes a massive, massive difference. Obviously, the more you save, actually, the more you learn how to live on lower living expenses. Only then, and when you've got that financial resilience, can you start thinking about investing? Because that's where you need to overcome the behavioral stuff that obviously you, you, you talk about so much. And so, your, your kind of tomorrow fund might be you know for me when i was younger it was about saving to have a deposit to buy a you know to buy a flat to buy a home and then my day after tomorrow fund is my retirement how am i going to live when i stop earning money and what we do know is that the money you save you know in your 20s and 30s will grow 32 times if you invest it over four or five decades with tax relief right that's but you need to start that's you know and you know morgan will talks about this right you know 90% of Warren Buffett's wealth came since he was 65. That's just the magic of compound interest. And so people don't understand understand these concepts. And so what if we can change people's decision-making to help them make uh, better decisions? So someone who works for me, I've, I've, I've written a new book that I'm publishing later this year, and she's, I've called her Jane. That's not her real name. When she started working for me five years ago, she was in credit card debt. She'd taken out store cards, built up debt, It was just strangling her. I started explaining this to her and she started paying off her debt and got debt free. He then said, Well, you know, I'm in my 30s and I'm approaching 40. I really want to, I never dreamed that I could have a house or a mortgage. I want to start doing that. So she started saving for that. And actually, she decided to move back in with her parents to save, or back in with her mom to save money on rent to save for a deposit on a house. Anyway, just last year, she's got a deposit on her house and she's bought a house so in five years she's gone from credit card debt to saving and having enough to buy a house i promise you this is someone who doesn't earn much more than the average salary in london so this is not about how much money you have but it's about being able to make good decisions with money and feel confident about money and And then look, the the sad truth is in the UK, the average man will run out of money 10 years before he dies. The average woman will run out of money 12 and a half years before she dies. And often that's because financial responsibility rests on them. And unless they start the habit of putting £100 a month into a pension in their 30s, they just will not have enough money when they retire. And and many people in the UK just do not feel confident about investing. Investing is something that wealthy people do. something that Warren Buffett does. It's something that you need a wealth manager, doesn't that? That's not me, and I just think we need to overcome that. And I, I, I really think, certainly for seventy percent, so everyone above, if we could teach everyone how to earn it, keep it, and grow it, I, I passionately believe that we can materially improve people's financial resilience and avoid kind of mental health issues. That's getting into debt and all those issues, and financial well-being. That's about having enough money to kind of have a comfortable income when you when one day
1: you you come to retire. Well, you've, you've certainly made a powerful case for the need for this. And of course, this begins at home. But I've heard you say that parents are more comfortable talking to their children about sex than money, which is incredible to think about when I think about how uncomfortable I am talking to my kids about <laughs> sex. And you, you give three good reasons. You say we talk about it in a boring way, we overcomplicate it, and, and we don't start early enough. What's the source of our hesitancy to have money conversations when they're so central to a happy life? And and how do we how do we change this tendency?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if that's a UK thing or uh, if that's if that's true in the US, but certainly in the UK, talking about money is a very taboo subject. People don't like to talk about how much they earn uh, people don't like to talk about saving and investing. And so it's, it's just, I don't know why, it's just a taboo topic that no one talks about. So in a world where we don't have financial education at school, parents don't talk about it. And then suddenly you're 18 and you can go and get a store card and you've got to decide all of this stuff. Financial responsibility lies on your shoulders. No, I mean, how can, you know, you need a driver's license to drive a car. Like all of a sudden we take all of these kids and we just pop them into the world and go yeah you've got to figure out do you take insurance do you put your money how much do you save do you pay taxes you, you know if you're in, like the, the complexity of money today compared with 50 60 years ago and the decisions and the number of products is insane why wouldn't we teach like we're sending young people out into the world with no roadmap with no highway code with no guidance I mean. When you describe it like that to me, it seems insane.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, if if parents find themselves in this camp of being hesitant to talk to their kids about money, how do you think they get started and get a little bit more comfortable with it?
2: Yeah. So, in in uh, in Wales, a few years ago, there was this kind of kind of talk, learn, do campaign that was with like two thousand parents. To qualify, you had to be parents with primary school kids, so between like five and eleven. Uh, and it was really a two-hour intervention where you were talking about money. And it was really to stop that horrible situation, which I'm sure you've experienced, but where you're in the supermarket and your kid basically has a meltdown because they want that toy, that magazine or that chocolate. You're at the till and they're just like, you're like, no, you can't have that. And they're like, okay, I'm going to take you down and stop screaming and shouting in the supermarket. And so really this whole program is about parents having a very simple conversation about wants and needs. And kind of basic financial empowerment with kids. So I'm a big believer in giving kids pocket money to kind of start to empower them with financial decision making, encouraging them to do chores to earn money. Beyond that, to kind of start thinking about if I want this magazine or toy, I need to save for it. And 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 yeah, as I say, it's about micro decision making from a really young age in a really safe uh, in a really safe way. So this two hour intervention. Uh, they tracked it and they found that the parent, and they weren't doing it for the parents, but they found that three months later and six months later and a year and two years later, the parents of this program, they themselves were saving more money and, and spending less money or kind of paying down their debt. And they themselves have become a lot more aware about it. And, and we, we we see this effect, we talked at the beginning about ESG and being sticky with money, but we see the same with parents where parents have this kind of, and again, you'll probably know why, but this kind of almost psychological dissonance where they might not save or invest for themselves but they think about saving or investing for their children and therefore you know one of the things i like to talk to about to parents is you know did you know if you start a pension from birth with 5 pound a day and if you do that for 10 years and then stop the magic of compound interest and kind of tax free growth will mean you'll have a million pounds by the time you're 65 they're like no way explain how that works and of course it's just the magic of compound interest over 70 years and once they get that and set that up, they then often as a result of that, end up saving or topping up their pension more because they've seen it in someone else that they care about. And they're like, oh, okay why am I, if, if I'm doing that for my grandchildren, why am I doing that for my children? why am I, why am I not doing that for myself?
1: Yeah, it, the, the behavioral principle at play is called self as role model. And so one of the things that we can that we know from from the research is that if we start, teaching something then we start to act in a way that's consistent with our teaching we if we're teaching our kids about good financial behaviors that's going to have a positive impact on the way we act so it's it's sort of a righteous cycle a virtuous cycle at the next generations learning while we ourselves are then sort of <laughs> feel pangs of guilt if we're not acting in a way that's consistent with what we're teaching our kids so rob last question here um, you're involved with the World Economic Forum. I said from the outset that, that you're someone I, I see as, as someone with considerable vision about the future of finance and, and someone who's very passionate about taking us in a new and better direction. Uh, what do you think the industry looks like 25 years from now? As I'm retiring and, and you're retiring, what do you think the industry looks like 25 years from now?
2: So, yeah i was just figuring that out i think i'll be uh, 69 in in, in in 2047 but look I, I i'm not you know i'm not in the market for predicting I'm, i mean i think the one thing you know i'm certain of is the future's uncertain but why don't i paint some scenarios for you because i think that's probably more helpful and in order to paint those scenarios i want to kind of go backwards first so yeah i was born in 1978. There was roughly 4 billion people when you and I were born. The CO2 parts per million was 335, so well below 400. Uh, And there were a lot more fish in the sea, sharks, dolphins, whales, biodiversity. So in the last 40 years, global population has gone from 4 billion to 8 billion. CO2 parts per million has gone from 335 to 420. And we've destroyed about 70% of the biodiversity on our planet in 40 years. Okay. So, what's going to happen in the next twenty-five years? Scenario one: we just carry on. Population ends up at ten billion. We don't grab this CO two thing. We end up like you know that movie with uh, uh, Look Up Now, and basically the meteor crashes and we cook the planet to death. And global temperatures go up two and a half, three degrees C. We kill. We basically kill off all flora and fauna. And on our current trajectory, we only have forty soil cycles left. If we keep farming and carrying out agriculture, we doing 40 years worth of soil cycles before we've completely degraded everything. So that's a pathway. It's just a, it's a pathway that we're on. I'm not saying that will happen, but it is definitely a possible outcome. 10 billion people, CO2 parts per million heads up to 450, 500. Global temperatures go up to two and a half, three degrees C, sea levels rise, hurricanes increase, droughts happen. We kill more animals and it's pretty, pretty crap place to live in. It's definitely not a world worth living in. That's outcome one. Outcome two is we figure out a way to kind of bend the trajectory. And so, you know, I'm sure you remember, I remember as a kid people talking about fridges and CFCs and the hole in the ozone. And the big thing was a hole in the ozone. Yes, And, and actually the other thing was whaling and, and Greenpeace. And, and two things we were able to start. One was whaling and the other is ozone, the ozone layer. And, and actually that's come back and we kind of got it under grips and so forth. So those for me are kind of like to quote Chip and Dan Heath, those are the bright spots. How can we use those bright spots to, to create change? So when I think about addressing climate change, it's not just climate change, it's biodiversity. And we need four things to happen. We need awareness. That awareness, I think, really happened with that last year with COP26, with uh, the IPCC report. Just more and more people outside of the people who were already convinced, you need the middle to be convinced. We're like, "Hmm, this is an issue. I, I had no idea. The second thing is action. What can I take? What can I do? where I earn it, where I save it, where I spend it, where I invest it, where I give back to make a difference. Alignment, how can all of these businesses align? Because guess what? If we need an airline company to, to get to net zero, then we also need to find better fuels, better, you know, we need net zero aluminium, we need net zero steel, we need to think about EV planes. So we need all if everyone starts working together and embracing the simple economy, it becomes easier and easier. So you get a kind of a snowball compounding effect. And then fourth, you need finance to be able to accelerate you to get there. So I'm going to paint an extreme picture the other way, which is the other zeitgeist of the last 13 years has been this kind of concept of decentralization. So Bitcoin, blockchain, decentralized finance is this idea that we can do stuff without needing centralized networks. We don't need the Bank of England. We don't need the Federal Reserve. You and I can do business together. We've never actually met. We've met on Zoom. We've been on webinars together. Mm -hmm. We've spoken, but we live thousands of miles apart. We've never actually physically met each other, but we can do business together and transact and do that. So I, I can see a world in the future where we have a blend of centralized institutions and decentralized. We have kind of private and public blockchain. And what if we had this radical idea that what if when we think about global capitalism, we don't just think about money and people, but we also think about nature and the value that nature provides. So just to bring that to life, right now, elephants are being killed for $40,000 because their tusks are worth about $40,000. However, these elephants, because of the way they eat and poo and walk around the forest, sequester CO2 and a lifetime value of that co2 sequestration used to be about 1.75 million dollars i think on current prices is about 2 3 million dollars what if we created a new global ecosystem a new global form of capitalism where we valued nature and the services that it provided the same way we think about physical plant and stuff and create a new global economy centered around that again to really nail that point home a few years ago paris we're thinking about how do they reduce flood risk in the city of Paris. They had two options. One, spend 1.5 billion euros on a new sewage system. Or two, spend 650 million on planting trees in special spaces around Paris that would improve the way rain falls and drainage and all the rest. Now, we know what happens. They spent $1.5 billion on the sewage system. Why? Because if you spend one and a half billion on infrastructure, that's an asset that sits on your balance sheet. If you spend 650 million on trees, that's a liability because someone's got to go and look after the trees and service it. So I think we have a system that is all wrong. What if the US government, when it looked at its national audit and accounts, valued its coastline, its forests, its bears, its salmon? What if the UK government valued its coastline, its peatlands? What if Africa suddenly was to become one of the most prosperous countries or continents in the world? Because they have some of the best keystone species and their natural habitats alive. And we can start to sequester carbon and reduce carbon change and actually drive a world in which 10 billion people can live a prosperous life, but one that is health, healthy for people and planet. So hopefully we end up closer to that version of the future. Than the first f- version of the future that I talked about.
1: I'm, I'm having an Ebenezer Scrooge moment. I feel like I've just been visited by the ghost of Christmas future and I'm terrified oh. of the first scenario. I'm terrified of the 40 soil cycles and I have an immense need to start a business now that values nature. That's super compelling. You saved the best for last. Rob, if if people want to learn more about your ideas, where can we watch your Ted talk? Where can we buy your new book and and, and hear more about what you're thinking?
2: Yeah, look, the best place is on LinkedIn. So go onto LinkedIn, type Robert James Gardner and and, and follow me there. I'm on Twitter as well, at Robert J. Gardner uh, and and on Instagram. But most of my ideas, most of my thoughts, you know, when you publish this podcast or share it on on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. connect with me. And yeah, that would be great.
1: When does the new book come out?
2: So I'm hoping uh, to finish the final draft uh, this weekend uh, and to go to publish, so probably uh, May time.
1: Congratulations. I know uh, firsthand that that is a labor of love and I can't wait to read it. We'll have you back on the show then. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Have a great evening. Thanks, Daniel.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.